Welcome to another episode of the World Salon Podcast. In this episode, we will analyze China's economic trajectory and implications for the world. Our guest is Professor Ronald Tram, renowned expert on the Chinese economy and author of the book, The Chinese Macroeconomy and Financial System. He will illuminate China's growth model, financial system evolution, and strategic intentions. This will provide a timely perspective on the fast-evolving and complex Chinese economy. Professor Shram's decades of research offers insights into China's economic rise. We will explore the underpinnings of China's growth miracle, how it transformed from an impoverished planned economy to an economic powerhouse, and where is China headed next as it transitions to a more sustainable growth model focused on domestic consumption and high-tech industries. China's financial system has also rapidly evolved from a monobank to a more diversified landscape. We'll examine risk and reforms in China's financial system and the impacts on global finance as the RMB internationalizes. Overall, Professor Shram will help us make sense of the opaque but fast-changing Chinese economy. His expert lens sheds light on the road ahead for China's economy and its global footprint. Now, before we get into any specific questions, are there any points you'd like to mention about the Chinese economy that you see or believe are major inflection points or areas of focus, Professor? Uh, thank you for the introduction and thank you for inviting me. And um, I certainly wish you um, the best of luck in your in your salon. And uh, the more information about China and about U.S.-China relations, the greater the transparency, the better. And so um, I I'm all for uh, doing something like this. And um, uh, as as I said, I wish you a lot of luck in the endeavor. Okay, so um, to answer your question. I think um, we focus a lot, um, especially in the media, on um, short-term developments, whether China's GDP went up or down um, this quarter or compared to the last quarter and whether it slowed or not. Um, but I think what's missed in that discussion are the fundamental um, forces, what I call key drivers, which uh, are driving the Chinese economy over the long term. And I think, um, broadly speaking, COVID and um, recent efforts to reboot the economy um, sort of mask longer-term trends. Um, and um, I think those longer-term trends, which involve population growth, China's savings rate, things like returns on capital, the role of government um, in, Chinese, in the Chinese economy, the adaptability and flexibility of China's labor force, all of these are longer term factors, which um, uh, while obscured by short run phenomena such as COVID and, and, and short term policies are um, in, are are the are really the important drivers over what's what happens over over time. Well, thank you, thank you very much. So, so these important drivers that you mentioned, how do you see these important drivers are shifting? You know, recently, given the macro environment in China. Yeah. So, if we, uh, I mean, as uh, much ink has been spilled on China's labor force. Um, and, and for good reason, the fact is, is that China's labor force is shrinking. So that's sort of a negative in terms of China's long-term economic growth. 
China's savings rate um, is also uh, 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 lowering slightly, but China's savings rate has sort of maxed out. It's a key driver. It's one of the highest savings rates in the world. The, the Chinese economy uh, saves more than most, uh, in, in, as a share of GDP, than most other economies, if you exclude those rare exceptions like uh, Singapore, or perhaps uh, Qatar. Uh, so, but that huge savings has maxed out as well and is in sight, slight decline. And in fact, in, in the long run, that's probably a good thing for China. But, but in the short run, um, that has created some problems um, all of its own. The adaptability and flexibility of the labor force, um, which I have always felt was one of China's greatest assets, probably still remains important, although the population is aging. And speaking from experience, as you get older, you become less flexible and less adaptable. Um, so that's also a challenge, I think, um, for China over the long run. And then the role of the government, uh, the role of the government has become more pervasive, I think, rather than less, less so um, in, in recent years. But that's certainly a key driver for the Chinese economy. So these key drivers, in some sense, are moving in different directions than they have historically moved. And that has created, I think, some, as with all changes, that has created some frictions and tensions in what's going on in, in the Chinese economy. What I would say is in response to those changes, the Chinese authorities feel that they need a new key driver, and that new key driver is technology, technological progress, broadly defined. Economists differ very much in what technological progress is from what you would think of on, on this, uh, in, the, in a colloquial discussion. Um, Technological progress sure includes things like science and engineering, but it also includes things like better management, better human resource um, management, um, better financial systems. So it's a very broad term that includes improvements in the way we do things. And those could be engineering solutions, and those could be management solutions, and those could be human resource types of solutions. Um, uh, my fear is, is that China very much, the authorities tend to view technological progress more from an engineering perspective rather than from this more, more broad perspective. All of that being said, let me just summarize. Some of China's key drivers are moving in ways that are not favorable, such as the, the size of the labor force. China has decided then what it needs is perhaps a greater role for the government to, to make corrections for that, for that um, other those other key drivers which have weakened, if you will, and has also decided that technological progress is important. But um, the definition of technological progress can can differ, and I think that's also an important consideration. Now, I'm sorry for that very long winded, uh, <laughs> long winded uh, discussion, but um, I think that's a good uh, starting point uh, in in summary of. of of maybe the broader issues. No, no, not at all. I think it's a it's a very good summary. But that, but I am curious. How is the Chinese government positioning its economy or, or its population 
for this technology shift, you know, in response to these key drivers, you know, the savings rates, the demographic shift, how, what are some policies um, that, that it's implemented or it's planning to implement? Well, if you go around um, in cities in China, you see all sorts of um, uh, labs, uh, new labs that have been constructed, science centers, um, uh, local government venture capital funds investing in new technologies. So I think um, China at, at both the macro level and at the local level, very much in earnest is in trying to invest heavily in, in science and technology. And as you said, um, I think in, in something you wrote me, China now leads the world in terms of number of new patents. And so I think all of that is part of a, um, a government program to enhance technological progress. But again, for an economist, technological progress is, is that, but it's also the other things which are just as important. Um, and so I think, um, hope uh, ideally in the coming years china will realize that there are also economic returns to these other types of softer types of investments rather than the engineering types of investments and what so are some if you look at the so for example you know to be even more specific i don't i don't have it in front of me but if you look at china's five-year plans um in count words you'll find that some of the most frequent words used in China's most recent five-year plans relate to technology, science, engineering, chips, semiconductors, so on and so forth. These are, in, if you look at five-year plans from, let's say, um, 20 or 30 years ago, the most common word you would find is agriculture. So there's been a clear shift, um, in, in, and that's, that's a great thing. What I'd like to see more words, frequency of words uh, in the five-year plan is um, human resources, consumption, management, better financial management. Um, those types of softer skills I'd like to see, um, you know, that would, um, I think, um, be a more balanced approach. Hmm. I think that's, that's very insightful and, and very important. So what are some of these more specific examples of these software approaches um, that, you know, economists call technology, but aren't the technology that the Chinese government is focusing on? Yeah. So, I mean, as a, as a starting point, um, China spends among, certainly among developed, uh, in comparison to development, developed countries, and Certainly in comparison to some of its Asian cohorts, China spends as a share of GDP substantially less on human welfare and, and education, for example. So um, uh, th those are simple uh, sort of, sim so un unemployment benefits, training, those types of things, um, social welfare in general, um, those are the, the types of things which are, are, are are softer benefits. Um, in addition, um, uh, a greater focus in the educational system on human resource management, um, I think, uh, is uh, something that um, would benefit China over the long run. Um, and then, um, uh, yeah, I think those are some of the, the key the key areas. So. 
Uh, actually, um, I think a few podcasts ago, we had um, Professor Scott Rosell from mm. Stanford. I don't know if you know him. We had him mm. on our podcast, and he actually spoke quite extensively about China's education system and how it, it lacks um, early childhood education, which then leads to um, a lack of knowledge workers, workers that can work in you know white-collar jobs. And as China's shifting from an industrial, agricultural-based economy to more of a you know so-called technology-based, you know we'll see a shift in jobs from these more intensive labor type jobs to more white collared ones. And as you also mentioned, you know, China isn't heavily investing as heavily in education and these human resources resources as it should. So within the next five to 10 years, how do you think that will affect China's economy? Do you think there will be a, a gap in, in, in the human resources needed to fill these jobs versus, you know, the current population that's available? Yeah, well, it's a roadblock because already, um, and what I, I describe in my textbook in great detail, which I just happen to have a copy of <laughs> available on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> well, we'll put it in the link. <laughs> <laughs> which I keep, uh, I, I actually keep it with me all the time because there's a lot there and um, it's easy not, It's easy to forget what you've, what you've written. But um, uh, it's... Uh, you know, we have two types of capital. We have physical capital, right? And we have human capital. So in simple terms, and Roselle is really an expert on education, and he's, he's actually cited in, in my uh, textbook. But um, in simple terms, if we look at the returns on, on physical capital in China, that's plant, property, equipment, things like factory, everything from factories to real estate. If we look at those returns, those returns peaked around 2008, 2009, and since then have been in decline. Right? And in, in, in large part, the reason for that is because since the financial crisis, the great financial crisis, China has spent a lot of its GDP on investment pushing the returns down. And so now at this point in, within China, overall returns, um, and, and this is not related to, related to COVID. Uh, I mean, to some extent it is, but it's, it's, in other words, it's not a short-term phenomenon. This is a phenomenon which has been occurring since 2008. Um, those returns now are probably on par or even lower than what we would find in the United States. And that's sort of shocking because China is still an emerging economy. So we would expect for an emerging economy with, you know, a, a pretty sophisticated um, way of operating. Uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about an emerging economy that is um, in disarray or, you know, China's not that, right? China's a coherent, stable emerging economy. We would expect its returns to be relatively high. They're not, they plummeted. So what does that mean? It means that China is overinvested in physical capital and needs to then shift some of those investments towards the other kind of capital, human capital, making people um, more productive. And, and very much this, you know, this sort of ties in with the entire fiscal system of how funds are distributed 
um, for spending. They're distributed to the provinces, and the provinces are rewarded for how much they build and so on and so forth. Um, those are the metrics that are are are, are the measure, are the metrics for success in China. And so we have to sort of change those metrics to talk about um, measuring uh, human achievements and human welfare. Um, and, and that will get China the growth in the coming years. One final sort of footnote to all of this is that China now, of course, its larger sector is no longer manufacturing. It's no longer the secondary sector, the ter tertiary sector. Services are, are now the largest sector in China, both in terms of GDP and in terms of um, employment. And so um, that means that that sector will in large part determine standards of living, productivity, things like all of the things we care about. And what are services? Well, they're very hu human, human, they're people intensive. So if you want to get things going, really, there has to be focus on that area. So, so the service sector is obviously very important for China's economy. And how do you see this sector in particular evolving um, you know, within the next five, 10 years? And how do you think it will affect China's macro economy? Well, I, you know, it'll, uh, it will uh, continue to grow. I think the, uh, it's still, uh, as a share of GDP, still substantially, it's large, but substantially a lot smaller than what we would find in Europe or the United States. It's not, it hasn't quite reached um, that level. So it will um, continue to grow and it will change. Um, when we think of um, service consumption, you know, in the United States, we think of uh, all sorts of um, uh, consumption that's uh, materially related. In China, I think consumption will evolve toward the service sector. So in other words, it won't be material related, but consumption will be things like tourism, education, um, uh, um, things that really are are technically investment, but which in an accounting sense, we would call consumption. So, you know, when you, when you go to school um, uh, and let's say you take on extra training, that's measured as uh, consumption. The reality is the economic reality is it's really investment in yourself. So the Chinese will, I think, pursue those types of, um, of, uh, of, in, of, of, of forms of consumption, which are he heavily into the service sector. So, continue, you know, and finance, of course, financial services, and that, that is an area where there's um, room for greater rationalization and, and growth within China, asset management. I see. So do you think the chi current Chinese labor force is equipped for this shift um, to a heavier, heavier reliance on the service sector. Obviously, the service sector encompasses, you know, a lot of different fields. There's financial service. There's, um, you know, maybe insurance service. But do you think the current population has the knowledge and know-how to make this transition, given the, you know, relatively relative lack of education afforded to the the general public? I, I think uh, it's an area for growth, and I think, um, as I say, the 
Chinese are incredibly adaptable and flexible labor force. And so they have that great potential. But um, of course, um, training and education uh, is always important and good training, good education. Oh, um, Professor, I think there's a problem with the internet again. I, I think your audio is cutting out. Uh, really? Oh, it's back. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, yep, yep we're back. So, so good, tra good training and good education is better. Um, so I think there is, um, there is that potential. But, you know, uh, there's two sides of this coin. One side is, well, there's a weakness here. But the, the positive side is, is that is really a potential area for continued growth. So mm, let me um, seg this a little bit into these issues of growth, because um, with a population that's shrinking, it's very hard to have GDP grow very fast, because GDP is like making a cake. You need ingredients. And the most important ingredient in that cake is the labor force. And if that's shrinking, uh, your cake is not going to, you're not going to be making more cakes, you're going to be making fewer cakes. So as I mentioned earlier, the, there's a need for um, uh, technology, but also a need for making each worker, e each of those fewer workers, a better worker. You know, that's, that's sort of the, that's sort of the, um, I think, the policy goal. But, um, you know, the, the authorities, um, in China have a difficult time because they're, um, as with any, any political authorities in any part of the world, they're always weighing short term what happens in the short term versus what they actually need to do um, in the long term. And uh, my fear is, is that with slower growth in China now, um, you know, and projections of growth slowing even more, which on current, on current, the current trajectory is almost certain for that to happen. That growth will gradually edge down from 5% to 45 to 4, 3, and China will never become the fully middle-class society it hopes to be. That's, that's, that's the worst thing that can happen. So how do you change that trajectory? Well, um, I think, um, if you sort of shift mentality a little bit, say we need to invest in people. Now, given the significant role of the real estate sector in China's economic structure, which accounts for nearly a quarter of its GDP, it's evident that it remains pivotal to China's economic future. However, the sector has encountered substantial challenges, such as astringent government regulations aimed at restraining speculation, coupled with the burden of high developer debt and external factors such as trade tension and the implication of the COVID pandemic, the market has experienced periodic disturbances. Now, this was exemplified by the Evergrande financial crisis in 2021 and the ongoing situation with Country Garden, and now the situation again with Evergrande. Considering these challenges and the current state of affairs, where do you envision the trajectory of China's real estate market over the next decade? And additionally, how do you anticipate the sector evolving to address and potentially overcome these crises? Yeah, uh, this is a, a huge, uh, you know, it's obviously a huge problem. Um, it ties in, the real estate market ties in with so many other parts of the economy. And um, it, uh, 
I, I, I think uh, one critical, the most underrated word in all of finance, in my opinion, is the word depreciation. And that uh, is sort of one major concern because as you put up these buildings, um, they depreciate. And if no one is living in them, um, you know, you're losing money without, through depreciation uh, without anyone paying the rent, pay, paying the mortgage, whatever. So um, this is a, a race against time. Um, I think the authorities may have to find um, some type of dramatic solution um, to that problem. And it's very much, a, I suspect in the end, there'll be very much a China style solution where um, people ultimately will be moved into these buildings. There'll be huge losses um, that the government will have to take on. When I say the government, ultimately, it's not really the government, it's China's savers, China's citizens who have deposited monies, money in banks. Those banks have lent funds for real estate projects which are not economically viable. So that's the reality. So there's going to another. There's going to have to be a big hit uh, taken from the real estate market. But the Chinese authorities can do that. They they they've done that in the past. And so I think they're going to have to find a solution in which people are um, uh, encouraged in Chinese style. And I use that word encouraged uh, <laughs> in quotes with quote marks mm -hmm. um, to move into these buildings, perhaps with. Uh, the right to um, uh, leasing with the right to buy some some type of arrangement like that for some reasonable price below the cost of the building, um, you know. The, so again, the developers or the banks or the citizens will have to take a hit in turn. So, but the um, this is a problem that um, uh, is not going to go away, mm -hmm. and. We'll, we'll need a policy, some type of policy decision to uh, to uh, uh, to make it um, uh, become less. Now, the reason I'm confident the Chinese authorities will do that is because of a question that I've often asked my students in my class, which is, this is the question I've often asked my students. I've, I've asked, how many of you know that uh, your major banks were all fully bankrupt in the period 1998 to 2003. Very few, almost no students know that, but they were. And that was a situation in which um, the Chinese authorities stepped in. They bought up the bad debts of the banks through the asset management companies. The banks were recapitalized. There were interest rate ceilings and lending a floors set so that the banks would return to profitability. And what do you know? The banks became more profitable than Western banks through that sort of propping up of, of the banks. That's not to say there wasn't an economic cost. There was a huge economic cost for all of, for all of those bad investments. But the, the authorities sort of took the bull by the horn, as we say, and solved the problem. I suspect the same thing is going to happen in the real estate market in China. Eventually, the authorities will say this is um, um, a problem that we can't let uh, just sort of fester 
get worse, we'll have to sort of um, make some dramatic policy decisions about, um, you know, bailing, bailing everyone out, but at a huge cost to savers. So, so what was the economic cost of China bailing out its large banks back in the 1990s to 2000s? And what do you think will be the economic costs of China bailing out, you know, these large real estate groups today? Well, I don't have, if you're asking me what do I, um, in, ter- in terms, terms of a numerical estimate, I'd have to actually, you know, work through the numbers to, to give you a numerical estimate. What I can tell you in broad terms is that um, for the bailout in the 1998-2003 period was um, that depositors receive lower interest rates in the years to come, really um, all the way up to, I I guess, 2015, there were ceilinged interest rates um, on deposits. So the depositors just received uh, very minimal returns, if any at all, and that was the cost that you know that that was the cost of of doing that, or or, um, or um, other programs or development projects that the uh, there were opportunity costs, obviously that you know could have been undertaken, just as in China today, instead of putting those empty buildings up there were, were opportunity costs for spending that money in a different way. And again, that goes back to the theme of human capital versus physical capital. I, I don't think there would have been a need for more uh, subway lines or more, uh, you know, rail lines or perhaps more roads. I, that's not where I think there would have been the highest return. Um, but in, in the other types of human capital investments we've talked I see. So, so this big bailout or this this big policy, how will this affect you know? As you mentioned, the savers, what will, how will their life change? And from potential investor standpoint, how will the real estate market for investors be different, whether that be foreign or local? So, um, I think it'll be a, a while. There's a, a a glut of housing, you know, and, and real estate is all local, so it depends on which locality you're talking about it we're, we're not talking about Be- beijing or shanghai but we're talking about the uh, you know third maybe third tier cities um, where there's you know a, a cloud of housing maybe or, or or even some of the bigger cities i think like dalian has a, a, a housing um a glut and that of course is not to mention commercial space um as well because i'm i'm sure the same is true for Commercial real estate. So, um, so what was your your question was what was the question again? Say oh, the question is how will it impact individual savers and investors? Well, so so individual savers again, uh, who primarily so the Lao Bai Xing, or the common man who puts puts his money principally in the bank, and so his returns in the coming years will be that much lower because. Um, uh, he's not getting. They were the bank made some bad investments, so they're not, they're not going to be able to pay him uh, sufficient return. Um, it, it may affect the common man in terms of where he lives, because it, again, my feeling is for those vacant buildings, the authorities ultimately will encourage people 
to move in one way or another to those and there'll be some financial arrangement made with those people who may move in so that they're able to service um, to pay to pay the rent or to pay the purchase price you know so that 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 will affect them and so on. but all of these things are are, are really were really unnecessary i mean why why did that have to happen it, it, it's sort of a waste we're, we're now um the authorities now are distracted by this big problem when they could be spending their time on other kinds of problems instead of correcting correcting you know mistakes hmm. i i think that makes a lot of sense and with that i actually want to transition into u.s china economic relations you know, particularly trade tensions, which I think is another major agenda on on the Chinese government's economic list. So some articles mentioned that a tit-for-tat trade policy will lead to unnecessary losses and reduce welfare for both the U.S. and China. What's your view on this? And when I say tit-for-tat trade policy, I mean tariffs on certain products, restrictions on certain products, um, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the, the classical um, view is that trade should not should be unfettered as much as possible and that it's beneficial. There's also the political science view, and I'm not a political scientist, but I'm familiar with the view that countries that are economically integrated tend to have um, peaceful relations because of that um, economic integration. So, of course, it's um, unfortunate that um, we are um, sort of dismantling uh, some of our trading and investment relationship, relationships between China and the United States. Uh, and, of course, mm, um, this this demand dismantling in one way or another, speaking quite frankly, um, has to do with the status of Taiwan at the end of the day. So that that's the political reality that we we deal with. Um, um, I think the U.S. and China are too large to decouple. That's that's obvious, and we're too different. Um, we're two large economies which are too different in terms of economic structure to decouple because in, in the theory of international trade, the more different you are, the better it is. And that, that actually makes trade and in improvements in welfare more likely. So uh, we, we are going to be, we will continue to have an engagement in um, trade, but it will be that traditional um, set of goods which are not related in any way to national defense. So I mean, so I th I think um, that will be a new equilibrium uh, where um, we're trading um, um, in 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 our, in our traditional way, whether that be agricultural products from the United States uh, to China, or um, you know automobile parts from China to the United States, those types of trade, that type of trading relationship um, will continue. But the things that um, 
will be decoupled will be those things which are at the highest level of technology. Now, some have made, like people like Nicholas Lardy are sort of dismissive of this sort of um, decoupling. They, they argue, well, it's China invests $8 trillion a year and investment by, you know, foreign entities into China is something of the order of, you know, maybe 200 billion. It's, it's sort of a, a small percentage of China's overall investment. But I don't think that's, uh, that's, that's um, the full view. I, I think those high-tech uh, um, investments in high-tech trade are important. Historically, the most, productive, the most productive firms in China were those related to foreign direct investment. And there were spillovers from that into the rest of the Chinese economy. So these differences are harmful on both sides. Um, uh, and in economics, everything happens at the margin. And the thing at the margin is, are the newest technologies. That's, that's the newest technologies are the marginal thing. And so um, China will do fine. It just won't um, um, do as well uh, with these types of um, um, barriers uh, to our trading relationship. I would note that, um, you know, that this has been um, a, a, a gradually in evolving, um, a gradually uh, evolving process. There was always this, um, what was called Sifius, uh, the, 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 the U.S., looking at Chinese investments in the United States. That was maybe the first step. Then there was the next step, which was restricting exports from the United States in the technology space to China. Mm -hmm. Now there's, um, uh, then there was a, uh, another step in which uh, uh, Chinese science and technology students are very closely inspected, if not prohibited from entering PhD programs. And then the final step, which is most recent, um, which is the uh, Biden proposal to limit financial investments in these high technology areas. So it's actually been an ongoing process, um, getting worse and worse in terms of um, 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 more and more stages added. But I think in the next maybe five years, we'll have reached an equilibrium in which our trading relationship stabilizes and we're all familiar with what the rules of the game are. Um, and then we'll have to uh, rebuild from that, rebuild trust again, um, maybe in the coming decades. So earlier you mentioned there are a few stages of how the U.S. is reacting to China's you know, economic development from restrictions on exports to restrictions on you know, knowledge exports, so-called the PhD, PhD students. What do you think will be the next stage within the next five years before we reach this sort of equilibrium? And what do you think this equal, equilibrium will look like between yeah. the U.S. and China? Well, well, I think, I don't, I'm not, I, I, I do want to correct something you said. I'm not sure, again, I, I do agree with the U.S. position. We're not interested in thwarting China's economic development. I mean, because I, I think um, 
um, uh, even though we're competitors, we're, um, we're, we're trying to be um, good competitors in, in, some, in some ways. I think, as I said, I think most of these policies are related to the um, mili military competition um, between, the, between the two countries. Um, I, I, uh, I think that, uh, um, I think pretty much this, I mean, when you go into the financial realm, which is the most recent stage where the Biden administration's proposing restrictions on even financial support, um, for Chinese entities, um, in the high tech and in, in semiconductors and, um, artificial intelligence and, um, robotics. Um, I, th I think, uh, that restriction probably is, um, the final straw, at least I hope it is. I think, um, we're approaching a new equilibrium and it's going to stabilize there. Um, and, and, you know, China has, um, of course, a long history of scientific discovery. And so it's not going to be the end all of China science for sure. I mean, I think that that's obvious. Uh, it, it will just sort of slow um, some of the progress that uh, so that uh, the U.S. goal in, in the military realm, I believe, is to stay one step ahead of China which again is all uh, for any country is all that matters. It doesn't have to swamp another country. It just has to be one step ahead. And that's, that's the goal of the United States. Uh, and so I think our normal trade relations won't, uh, um, won't be harmed mm, I see. in the long run. I see, I see. I mean, according to you know, China Ministry of Commerce data, foreign investment in China actually dropped 15% last year. Um, is other than the technology sector, is there a reason why the U.S. share of foreign direct investment into China is declining? And how do you see this bilateral investment relationship, you know, moving, moving, go, yeah. moving, moving forward? Well, what investors hate is uncertainty, and so um, the, the policy changes on both sides uh, of the Pacific uh, have created a lot of uncertainty in the relationship, and so. Um, uh, no one wants to put in, in new investments in where in an uncertain um, environment. And, and then, of course, there is the uh, um, other opportunities around the world, whether it be Vietnam or India, um, for locating investment. And so, it's part part of a um, diversification of, of supply chains and things like that. But uncertainty certainly has, has plays a big role. Now, given the current macroeconomic climate, do you see this uncertainty expanding or do you see that it's sort of reaching this point where people realize, okay, things are very uncertain, but they'll get better and you'll see a larger share of, you know, foreign direct investment into China and this bilateral investment relationship? Yeah, I think um, in, it takes a while for uncertainty, you know, once you... Um, um, uh, um, introduce uncertainty into the system it takes a while for it to get to get resolved and for people to feel comfortable again but ultimately that will happen i'm optimistic about um the relationship between the two countries but um i think 
the uh, restrictions on both sides related to uh, science and technology will remain in place. That politically, those simply um, won't be removed. But once you have that certainty that this is the, these are the new rules of the game, and everyone feels they've stabilized, mm-hmm. which I could see happening in, within, you know, the next. Uh, 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 five to ten years, I think, uh, I could see that happening. Now, China's new financial regulatory regime reform in the recent period will have profound impacts on the development of China's financial industry. We are now going to discuss the key motivations behind the regime and the impact it will have on the industry. So in your, so in your view, what are the, what key, are the objectives key objectives and motivations, and motivations behind, behind China, China establishing, establishing a unified, a unified national, national financial, financial regulatory, regulatory administration? And how and could how this could impact, impact the regulation and supervision, and supervision of the banking, and banking insurance, insurance, security, and security sectors? sectors? And, and, and what impact will this have, will have on the economy as a whole? Um, as we mentioned earlier, China has vast savings, the largest savings rate in the world. And that savings is principally channeled through the banking system. So China is unique in this respect also that the banking system is the principal means of financial intermediation. In the United States, that's not true. Um, uh, there are other vehicles, whether it be money market funds or uh, mutual funds or hedge funds or private equity firms or, or bond issuance or stock issuance where there are a variety of channels by which funds are, savings are transferred into investments. But for China, the big story is the banking system. So I, I, I preface my response by that by saying that because these types of reforms then are very important um, for China. So one rash, possible rationale for um, putting um, all the regulations under I, I believe it's called what, what the proposed name is the National Financial Regulatory Administ- Administration. Yes. yes so, putting, so, so, so uh, taking away some of the regulatory powers of the People's Bank of China and reconstituting the Chinese, China's Banking and Insurance Regulatory Commission into a sort of a super agency um, is to um, add more coherence and less contradiction to the regulatory framework. Um, now, what do I mean by that? In, in my textbook, on the, on the, uh, when I discuss the China's financial sector, what I show is, is that every bank around the world is, has reserve requirements and um, might have uh, and uh, not might, but in all likelihood follows the BAL rules, BAL 3 or BAL 2 in terms of capital adequacy. So those are, are two rules, uh, 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 two restrictions on the balance sheets of banks. But in addition, uh, China has um, at least one other, which is uh, a restriction on the loan to deposit ratio. So already now I've mentioned three different restrictions on the balance sheet. You can envision and what I show in my textbook is that these just if you just have three, three restrictions, these restrictions can be contradictory. In other words, you can have a loan deposit ratio requirement, uh, which then will force the bank 
not to be able to meet its other restriction that you've put on it. So uh, the more types of restrictions you have on banks, the more likely you're going to have conflicts and create difficulties for banks to meet all of the restrictions at once. And in fact, there's a lot of uh, economic evidence um, to suggest that as you put these restrictions on banks, um, it, um, in their effort to meet all the requirements, you inadvertently create a shadow banking industry as well. So one of the reasons the shadow banking industry was blossomed in China for a number of years, beginning in the 2000s, I guess around 2013 or so, um, and probably even earlier, uh, was um, the fact that banks were very restricted by regulations. That's a long way of getting to, of answering your question is one purpose of sort of um, um, putting all of the uh, regulations under one umbrella uh, institution is that they're more likely to have um, uh, coherence and non-contradictions non in the restrictions they impose. They're more likely to do it in a rational way, which so so that's that's a a, a good a good reason. So you know to sort of avoid uh, loopholes. But there's another um, another level of looking at this, and the other level is is this. Um, there's a vast literature on how legal systems drive um, financial systems. In a, in a nutshell, um, common law countries, that is principally countries which are English speaking, Canada, the United States, the UK, Australia, uh, um, Hong Kong historically, um, Singapore, um, those countries follow common law where judges are constantly intervening, making decisions about fairness, right? What, what's fair and what's not fair. Civil law countries give less leeway to judges. It's more about the code, what the law states. Where does China fall in the spectrum of civil law versus common law? China is, falls clearly in the civil law system where rules determine what financial players can do. Judges don't really have much of a role at all in saying this was fair or this was unfair. It's basically the rule. This is, again, another long-winded explanation as to why uh, you would want a, uh, a, 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 an umbrella organization uh, to establish rules because that's what China does. It centralizes things. The Chinese authorities love to have central control, and they love to, uh, under their civil law system, love to have the rules and regulations that have to be implemented. And they don't want judges um, really intervening in this whole process. So that's um, sort of uh, an explanation as to w why maybe this makes sense. So on balance, it's probably a good idea for China, given its civil law system and uh, given its um, uh, tendency to like things centralized. The only um, down, down uh, not the only, but one of the down, main downsides of this type of 
arrangement is, is you don't really have competition among agencies and sort of a transparent discussion about what the rules should be. So if it's if the rules are all determined within one organization, um, you don't really have a lot of room for dissent. Um, the top people in that organization um, set down the rules and everyone follows along. So, I mean, banks banks have many, there are many regulations there, you know, in the US there are many regulations on banks. You know, who can issue credit cards? Who can issue debit cards? What consumer protection uh, should be? Um, should banks invest in um, poor areas in cities? There are rules about that, you know, that, that requirements and that. So when you have um, all of these rules, if you have different entities making them, they're pushing for their agenda and there's an open discussion and there's a negotiation, there's competition. Um, and somehow you get uh, some result, which hopefully is good. But um, if you put it all under one organization, there is some cost to that, which is you don't have that type of, and, and the point I'm making here is that means you, you the regulations might end up making big mistakes, you know, and, and they may actually create another 20 years from now. And we might not be talking about the real estate crisis, but we might be talking about some other crisis that the regulators um, let through um, because there was no competition of ideas about hey, this is a terrible idea, we better not do this. And no, this is a great idea, we should do this, and let's figure this out. Does that, go ahead. No, I think that makes makes a lot of sense. You know, it it gives a very good picture of what the motivation is behind China establishing a unified, you know, administration and the potential consequences. Actually, I am very curious though, what implications does the transfer of certain, you know, PBOC functions to the new regulatory administration have for monetary for monetary policy and the interplay between regulation and monetary policy. Yeah, well, we'll have to see what uh, you know what um, what regulations are uh, are transferred. My suspicion is is that the uh, you know things things let's say the reserve requirement, which is you know the bread and butter of central banking. I, I doubt if the new uh, regulator is going to have anything to do with setting reserve requirements or, um, you know, the currency to deposit ratio or things like, you know, so, so the macro, all the macro, macro regulations will in, in all likelihood remain under the purview of the, the people's bank of China, but the other, uh, sort of less, less interest, if you're an economist, the less interesting regulations like, um, I don't know, um, who should it, you know, how you, how do you uh, issue credit cards and what are the rules under which you issue credit cards, which really have no, no real macro of those types of issues. We have no real macro flavor to them. Probably will be under this new organization. I see. But so from an international perspective, you know, how might this reform impact perceptions of an engagement with China's financial markets by foreign firms and investors, which is a, a very, 
you know, key area of focus, I think, that the government should think about. Yeah, I don't think, um, I don't think uh, it's going to um, uh, change much. I think the, the big picture issues here are really important, and those haven't changed, which is that the big picture issues for the financial system is that um, uh, the authorities have five-year plans, and the financial system in many ways is uh, brought into those five-year plans to implement them through financial mechanisms. And that's not changing. Um, so um, uh, I think uh, smart firms that enter China then ask themselves, well, what are the five what are the five-year plan mandates and how does my firm as a foreign firm fit into that five-year mandate and um you know if i if i'm a financial firm is it uh going with or going against uh what the five-year plans and their five-year plan updates uh, are doing so to me that's that hasn't changed so i i don't think this regulatory change will um you know, it's something that lawyers will argue about and advise on, but it's not something that um, is going to make any um, um, any uh, shift in, in those types of plans. I see, I see. So you don't think this new administration will make foreign investment in the financial markets either harder or easier for, for foreign investors? There's not going to be much of a, much of a change for for this type of investor? Well, in some sense, it'll probably make it easier, I guess, because you're dealing with um, one agency, a go-to agency that is the regulator. Um, China is already, in some sense, easier in that it's a, a national set of regulations. In the U.S., the banks have both state and federal regulations. And um, I don't believe in China that's the case. It's, it's, it's all at the national level. And this just makes it even easier in some sense. It's more centralized. But again, my concern, the downside of this is, is that when everything is centralized and you make a mistake, it becomes a very big mistake. Mm. Um, when things are decentralized, it's hard to make big mistakes. They're trade-offs. It's not, you know, it's, uh, this is a broader China-U.S. difference. And there are just trade-offs. It's not to say one is better than the other. It's just different trade-offs. I see. I see. Well, now, having discussed China's overhaul of its financial regulatory structure, I think we can now turn to more recent banking sector regulations. Now, these new regulations aim to tighten risk management at commercial banks by improving asset classification. And as we transition from the macro regulatory reforms to these banking sector regulations, Professor Schramm will share insights on the motivations, implementation, roadblocks, and potential impacts. Um, though different in scope, these initiatives reflect China's broader push to rein in financial risk. Now, in particular, one of these is the risk classification of financial assets of commercial banks. On February 11th, 2023, China's banking regulators and central banks jointly, re jointly released new rules on risk classification of commercial bank assets. The goal is to improve risk management practices at banks. The rules expanded the scope of financial assets. The rules expanded the scope of financial assets subject to risk rating. Banks must now classify all on and off balance sheet asset bearing credit risk into five categories based on the borrower's ability to repay. 
um, certain criteria are provided for each risk level. Now, the first question is, what are the key motivations behi behind these new risk classifications for, for Chinese banks? Yeah, well, I think um, the fact that uh, um, uh, this is in, in modern, post-1978 uh, Chinese history, this is the second major banking crisis um, for China. This one is related to the real real estate market. The earlier one was, uh, as I mentioned, 1998 to 2003 or so, related to investments in the former Manchuria, the Dongbei, you know, the, the old Rust Belt of of China. So um, it's an effort to res to tighten up a sort of on. Uh, the classification scheme, that's one view of the motivation. But I think the other um, reason is, is that um, there are all these new um, uh, instruments floating around money market funds, um, off balance sheet items where, you know, the, the bank might establish a, um, uh, uh, a separate firm, a separate entity, and um, invest in that entity. It's still, uh, uh, it's an asset of the bank. Um, but the question is, should it be included in, um, you know, the, the various ratios of, of the related to the quality of the asset? So I think mm, it's uh, an effort, A, to, in response to the, um, real estate problem, basically, and, and, and how that's tied into banks, keep a more careful eye and to send a shot across the bow and say, you you guys um, better um, be a little more careful in, in your practices. And then secondly, um, to, um, uh, uh, to cover a broader range of assets, which have evolved. Now, again, I go back to uh, an earlier um, um, uh, the earlier discussion, which is, is that because China follows more of a civil law system, its responses to in banking innovation, such as, um, I don't know, such as um, a hedge fund or a money market fund or all of these shadow banking innovations, its responses cannot be through the judici judiciary, through judges. Its responses has to be through changing the code. So this, in that viewed from that lens, it's a way of responding to innovations um, through the code, um, not through appealing to judges and saying, you know, you decide whether this was fair or unfair in real time. I see. Now, how could you know these tighter guidelines impact lending to higher risk sectors, like for example, real estate, and could it constrain credit availability, thus hindering the economy in certain ways? Yeah, well, I think um, the tech sector is, seems to uh, seems to be, uh, you know, the great the great irony of China is that while China has one of the highest savings rates in the world. Um, that it would seek funds um, from foreigners. I mean, why? And the U.S. has, among developed countries, one of the lowest savings rates in the world. So why 
why do we see China, the U.S. funding um, something in China when China has this vast pool of savings? And the answer is, is that the financial system in China is sort of creaky and um, does not provide and, and also um, is unwilling to, pro to provide funds to some more of these innovative sectors, right? It, it, it traditionally views its, um, its, uh, uh, its mandate is, again, being part of the plan, um, funding what the authorities want them to fund, those sectors that are part of the industrial policy. So, so, so um, I, I think these new regulations um, uh, maybe in a positive way, maybe are a step towards saying banks to the, this is your uh, field of expertise. We're going to regulate it. You make these loans, um, but um, make, make them in a um, cautious way. Um, and then we are going to sort of develop an alternative financial system for the technology sector or more innovative sectors and uh, codify that in a different way. So I think it's an effort at rash. It's, it's a step. It's China's step toward rationalizing a system where banks are involved in pretty safe lending. And um, there is this other regulated sector called the shadow banking sector, which will be recon was blossomed, was crushed, and be will be reconstituted in an institutional way, not in a wild west way. And, and regulate it. So I think this is um, um, a step toward um, rationalizing uh, um, the financial system. Actually, speaking of the shadow banking system, you know, a, a sweeping amount of regulations came down in 2018, which effectively crushed the, the shadow banking industry. Do you think China, with these new regulations, is looking for a way to, to reestablish it? Or is this more of or is are these new regulations more geared towards you know these state-owned national banks, and for them to operate in a safer manner? Well, it, it's of course it's geared toward toward the banks. Uh, what I'm suggesting is is uh, uh, the authorities are going to um, um, say here are the rules of the game for the banks, and now here's a separate and in you banks you have an arena in which you can operate. And this is the arena, you know, maybe money market funds, maybe, um, uh, and maybe perhaps continue on with entrusted loans and things like that. But um, but then there's going to be a separate arena for the shadow banking sector, and there'll be a separate um, set of rules. Now, all of this being said, again, it's banks are always in China are always put into a difficult position because they're regulated and told not to make bad loans. And yet there's tremendous pressure on, on them to make loans historically to industries like the real estate industry. So uh, who's to say that won't happen um, again? Um, because that's um, if Xi Jinping comes to a bank and says, um, okay, uh, 
I know you have these rules and regulations, but I really like the uh, uh, semiconductor industry and let's go crazy on the semiconductor industry and make uh, lots of loans. The bank is not going to say no. Um, so um, it's um, a tension that the banks have to sort of um, um, find their way around. But again, it's, it, it, it creates the potential for an, another problem down the road. I see. They're, they're not, in other words, what I'm saying to you, it's all well and good to, 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 to uh, rationalize the regulation of banks which, and, and, and rationalize how they um, rate the quality of their assets, but it doesn't mean much if banks are still um, strongly encouraged to make loans to sectors uh, regardless of those um, regardless of those uh, uh, restrictions. Mm, I, I see. So what challenges you know, might banks face in implementing these new asset classifications? And do you think that, you know, could these requirements create incentives for banks to underreport certain risks to meet you know, certain metrics that, that they're given? Well, the, uh, uh, the Chinese uh, across the board are very uh, creative and um, there were many regulations in place as the shadow banking sector evolved and banks found ways to interface with the shadow banking sector to meet the regulations. So they might move deposits um, or move from uh, assets from their books to the um, books of the shadow banking sector or to an off balance sheet and move things back and forth overnight so that they met the regulation. But um, so, so I think um, um, they'll work with these new regulations. It may um, tighten up credit to uh, some, uh, it, the impact may be felt on the industries which are um, being lent to, it may tighten up credit uh, on those which, um, uh, given the current state of the Chinese economy, which seems um, a bit fragile, um, may be uh, problematic. So. I'm not sure when these actually will be implemented, the implementation. If, I'm not sure if they've been implemented yet, but if, if not, the implementation may be delayed or staggered because the, the economy is pretty fragile. Overall, the rationale for consolidating financial regulations in China is to create a more coherent and non-contradictory framework suited to its civil law system. However, the downside may include a lack of competition among agencies and the potential for overlooking important dissenting voices, which could in the long run result in unforeseen financial crises in the future. I am your host, Charlie Du, and thank you for listening to another episode of the World Salon Podcast, exploring major issues in worldwide development through conversations with leading experts. Please subscribe for more insightful dialogues and analysis. Thank you for listening.